Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Hi, Jen. Hello. Jen, today I thought we'd start with some trivia. I'm very excited about Ooh. trivia. We'll have a okay. couple episodes of trivia. Um, I'm scared, okay, but okay. You are the guest. Don't worry. I think we're starting pretty easy. So Ooh. because our guest today is a mental health professional and mental health is so important, I thought we'd do a short quiz about mental health. <clears throat> You've got Uh-oh. this. For Uh-oh. those following along at home, this is from the CDC website. I was like, can I just admit I'm unhealthy? Is that fine? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, 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 this is all good. Okay, so okay. I'll I'll just do a couple questions for you. So first question, and I, I feel like you got this, but poor mental health increases the risk for long-lasting or chronic physical conditions like heart disease, stroke, cancer, or all of the above. All of the above. What do you think? Yeah, that one's. Okay, a little too easy. Um, okay, this one might be in that category as well. But you, you got this. <clears throat> okay. Men- mental illnesses are very common, not very common, or fairly common. Uh, I'm going to go with fairly common. Oh, no. That's not Is right. it very common? Very common. They are very common. Oh, okay. I mean, that was my adults. first instinct, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this one, so those I clicked on, sorry, you knew, but, um, this one I actually don't know the answer to, so we're going to find out together, but Ooh, okay. suicide is the blank leading cause of death among people 10 to 24 in the United States. Here are your choices. 24th, 10th, 40th, or second. I second. honestly think it's probably super high. Yeah, I probably think it's second. That is correct. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people ages 10 to 24 in the United States. Yeah. I mean, do you want, do you yeah. want one more or are we done? Uh, <clears throat> sure. I'll take one more. Oh, here. Great. Cause this one's a good one. Ready? Mental illness, A, cannot be treated or B, can be treated. Oh, we're going to go with B. Totally can be treated. You got it. Yes. Great. Um, for anyone who wants to do more, check out the CDC website on mental health. But um, you and I know how important this is, and especially yes. an important element when you're dealing with assisted reproduction. And that's why we are so happy to have a mental health expert um, come on. Welcome, Judy Becerra, to the podcast. Judy, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Judy, um, I, Jen and I both feel so lucky to have known you for so many years and worked with you and really respected you. And uh, I mean, respect current, current tense. Um, I was about I to say, had, make that current tense, of course, please. Of course, of course, of course, current tense. Um, but I did not have any idea about your story or what you've been through until I got a glimpse of it recently and felt so honored that you were willing to come on and share that with others. Um, I'm always bad with the first question, but where do you start when you tell your story of building a family? Well, probably all the way back to, you know, being an adolescent and very, very first experience, you know, starting my period at 14 and, and like kind of from day one had problems. And I, I was that oh. girl that all through, all through high school that would, you know, have to miss at least one day a month from school oh. and, um, you know, walking around at home with my heating pad and my bottle of my doll. And, oh my gosh. Cause uh, you were just in so much pain and so much pain. Wow. And it took probably 10 years before 
somebody finally identified, you know, that I had severe endometriosis and um, which was really validating to know that there was finally an answer for, for yeah. everything that I went through for all those years. And But it was just um, 10 years of every month having excruciating pain? Excruciating pain. Wow. Yes. I mean, and oh yeah, it was, it was terrible. And I think that, you know, this is back in the early eighties, the late seventies, early eighties, where, you know, you really didn't talk about this stuff very much. And I remember my mom was a pretty big advocate for me and she would talk to, I remember one time talking to our family physician who had known me, you know, since I was a little, little person and her, my mom telling the doctor what was going on. And he said, well, you know, what are you eating? You know, maybe your diet's bad and that's what's causing, like, you know, and I, you know, a horrible story, but being in probably like eighth or ninth grade and just, you know, standing up and just having this, you know, flood of of blood and going everywhere and all over the chair that I was sitting on at school. And, you know, Obviously, how horrifying that age is anyway, and then to have oh something like that happen, right? It was terrible. It was terrible. And, you know, other girls would complain, oh, I got some cramps today. And I'm like, oh, you have no idea what cramps are like, you know? So, um, yeah, so that's kind of when the story began. So it wasn't until I was, I was actually 23 and just finishing up grad school, getting my master's in psychology and counseling and was getting married in about, at that point, in about six weeks, and had a ovarian, a, ovarian cyst rupture, oh. and um, nobody knew what that was either, and, and finally we were able to do a laparoscopy and see that I had, you know, this horrible endometriosis that was, you know, already at 23, completely blocked my tubes, and um, this doctor in this very small town in Kansas where I was going to, going to school and working at a group home, telling me, you know, well, you're probably not going to be able to have kids. I'm like, oh, wow. Just casually telling you that. Yeah. Just very casually. And you're about Um, to get married. Yeah. Getting married in six weeks. So I called my husband who was in another state at that time and said, so the wedding's off. Um, We're not getting married. And and he's like, you know, we had met in a, in a YMCA camp, um, you know, working with kids. And, and that was our foundation when we were 17. Uh, that we always wanted to have a family and and that was so important to both of us and I'm like I'm not going to take away this man's dream and not let him be a parent and of course he said yeah he sent me straight very quickly like you know what even at that point he goes we'll just adopt you know we'll just adopt um (laughs) thank thank you for putting that one yeah (laughs) we have an an episode called busting the just adopt myth so it's one of my total pet peeves so you know i knew that he was he was on for the ride and and he certainly has certainly proved that to be true so um so it was so then when we got married again six weeks later um and i was almost 24 and saw a a good doctor at that point he was able to explain to me what the endometriosis was and he said you know you need to st- you need to have a baby before you're 25 or else we're gonna oh. lose this because he had gone in there and nothing know, like pressure right nothing like pressure and okay. you know we're 25 years old we've just i've just graduated from grad school my husband's just started his career we don't have insurance that covers anything. We don't have any money. And then we're looking at, well, you need IVF. So I saw my first reproductive endocrinologist when I was 28. And I remember him looking at me and he goes, oh, if all of my patients were 
healthy 28 year olds, I'd be a happy man. And, you know, thinking this great success. And, and um, so I, when all was said and done, I did seven years of infertility treatment from, I think I did something like eight IUIs and um, two IVFs, which one, my parents were gracious enough to pay for when I was like 30. And then um, the other one, my husband actually had gotten a job that had fertility coverage, believe it or not, back in the early nineties. Wow. Got paid for the the second one, but neither, neither were successful. And now, you know, knowing what we've learned in the past 25 years, I know I was never going to be successful. Um, with, I had Asherman's and a, you know, a bunch of problems with my uterus and I needed a, I needed a surrogate, but back in those days, that wasn't really talked about, you know, nobody, my doctor never even talked to me about it. I just know now looking back, like yeah. my uterus could have never carried a baby. Why did I even go through, you know, two different embryo transfers with five embryos a piece back then? Oh, um, wow. And, uh, so yeah, it was, it was, it was, um, seven years of, of hell. And I think, you know, I remember talking, I was a mental health professional at the time and, and working in private practice and with mostly kids and, and, um, teenagers. But I remember talking to my reproductive endocrinologist at the time. And I said, you know, I, I am not doing good emotionally. I need to talk to a counselor, you know, is, can you, do you have somebody you can recommend? And, and he was a, you know, kind of a grandfatherly type guy and a nice man, but, uh, I don't think aware of the mental health struggles that go along with this. And, um, and him saying, you know, well, just find a counselor out there. There's lots of counselors, just find somebody. So I so found easy. somebody and so, yeah. so easy. And yeah, so I found this, found this lovely woman, but she knew nothing about any of this. And so I ended up spending you know, half my sessions trying to explain to her what these IVF medications were and, mm. you know, what, what this was oh. doing. And she just didn't have an understanding. So that was all the way back in, you know, the early nineties that I told myself, you know, someday when I'm through this journey of, of family building, then I'm going to do this work. This is such a need for women to be able to talk to people who specialize mm. in, in this. And so, it took a long time, but, but finally I got there and that's, you know, um, such a passion and I'm so grateful to be able to do that kind of work now. But, um, but the story ended that, um, you know, after the, after the first IVF, um, you know, which again was not something that we could afford to do over and over again at that you know young age, uh, that it was after that. And I kind of backing up a little bit, I was adopted when I was a baby. So adoption was always a very positive thing in my life. I never had an issue with it. I felt very grateful um, to have the family that I had and grateful that the birth mom had made, my birth mom had made that decision. She was a young teenager. Um, So it was always, you know, a positive thing, but I also felt like, you know, I don't have anybody in my life that I've ever looked like. And, you know, not that that's, end all be all, but you know, my, my whole family has blonde hair and blue eye and very fair skin and I'm dark hair and dark eyes and darker skin. And, and I thought, boy, it'd be, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody that I'm connected to genetically? And so it wasn't until I think I finally landed at this place where I realized what the important thing is I want to be a mom more than anything in the world. I want to be a mom. So I just had the failed IVF and it was about three or four months later and I had one of my friends called and said she had a, a teenager 
teenage son and she said one of her son's friends, girlfriends, just found out that she was pregnant and um, did I want to meet her? And I'm like, well, yeah. So she was over at their house that afternoon. So I just went over and met with her. And um, by the end of the day, the girl had called me and said, so do you want to be in the delivery room when I deliver the baby? Because you can't. Oh, wow. Yeah, was like, yeah, what? So um, she was 15 and was a doll and really let us be part of her whole pregnancy. So she was about three months, I think, when we met her. Um, so we were able to go to all of her doctor's appointments and I was able to be her Lamaze coach and um, was in the delivery room when my son was born and it was, you know, the best day of my life. It was incredible. So, um, so had him and that was 27 years ago, unbelievable. Um, and then probably it was a couple years later, um, where my husband got a new job that had actually had fertility coverage. So we're like, well, we may as well try this again. So we tried it one more time. And then when that didn't work, I'm like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And, um, and I had such a positive experience with adoption that I was completely open to doing that again. So we had had applications. This is in Arizona, had applications everywhere and, um, eventually, um, had some heartbreaks, you know, adoption is a, a, uh, I always tell people, if you think infertility is hard, adoption, in my experience, is even harder. because so It is not for the faint-hearted. It, faint -hearted. it yeah. is not. For, you know, and it's so sad because, you know, you've already been through an emotional roller coaster of infertility by the time, most people, by the time you go to adoption. So it's like, I'm already kind of emotionally spent, and now you're going to go on this whole new journey that's also going to have its, you know, ups and downs and heartbreaks and so we had, you know, one birth mom that we had met and everything was going great. And it was a day that the baby was born. I called to check in, I mean, the baby was due, called in to check on her. And she's like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and keep him. Just like, you know, oh, oh okay. So just cavalier. Like, yeah. Yeah. The sad part of that story is that baby ended up being taken from her a couple <sighs> years later. So she wasn't a good choice for that little guy, but, um, so I went through, you know, and just the, the heartbreak of the, we were working with an attorney at the time who would help facilitate our son's adoption. And she would call us and like, so here's this case, you know, this birth mom, we're going to present your case to her. And so you try not to get your heart, your hopes up, but you can't help it. And then I remember finally she called one time and she's like, so I have this um, woman who's going to be delivering in a couple months and she's in prison and she's a cocaine or crack addict or whatever and bipolar and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, fine, fine. We'll take her. You know, you're so desperate at that point. Oh. And then her calling the next day and saying, well, she, she, she denied you. <laughs> like, okay. Oh, so, pain. Wow. Yeah. So trying to keep your, you know, your sense of self and your yeah. you know, self-confidence up when you're being denied by, uh, you know, women right and left was, was really very, very difficult. And so luckily we just got lucky again. And my in-laws had some neighbors who had had a baby. And actually I had gone over there when, when they first brought her home to take a gift with my mother-in-law and it was not a good situation um, at all. And the, the birth father was alcoholic and was abusive and CPS had gotten involved and basically had told them like, you know, you're going to have this baby taken from you if you don't 
make some changes in your household. So they decided to be proactive and rather than a baby going just anybody um, remembered that we were trying to have a baby. So um, called my mother-in-law and said, well, if your if your daughter-in-law and son, son still want a baby, we'll give you, we'll give him this one. So it was kind of cavalier. And so we met with them and then they said they were going to give her to us. And she was two months at that point and had the attorneys working on all the document documents that we needed. And then she called me about two days before we were supposed to get her and said, well, we decided we're going to keep her after all. So that was another heartbreak. And then we went on vacation. And then the day that we got back from vacation, she called me again. It was a month later and said, you know what? We're going to let you have her. We can't, we can't. Oh, wow. So we got her about three days later. Attorneys got on the, on the uh, ball and got everything done and were able to take her home. And the, the birth mom was kind of weird. And now that we know the whole story, we, we know that she knew that there was a, a genetic condition that, that our daughter had called neurofibromatosis. Um, Cause I had asked her beforehand, like, could we take her before the legal documents are done? Can we take her to our pediatrician? That way, if there were any problems, we could get some adoption subsidy help with, with um, healthcare. And she, she kind of threw a fit. She's like, no, 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 you can't have her. You can't have her. Um, you can't take her to the doctor. So now I know hmm. that she was, she knew that they would probably find this because it was fairly obvious that she had this, this condition. So when we were finally able to take her to the doctor and we knew that um, the doctor was able to find, it's called cafe au lait spots that children with, people with neurofibromatosis have. And the first thing I said when the doctor said, you know, I think she's got this was, you know, is this a life threatening condition? And she said, oh no, no, no. You know, it, it could be life, oh. certainly life altering. And there's such a large spectrum with NF kids and adults that it can be very, very impactful to the quality of their life, or they can go through life and nobody ever even know that they have it. So you just go into that, you know, kind of knowing, all right, well, we'll deal with what we deal with. So. Um, so ended up moving to to Colorado when she was about six months old. Our son was about five at that time and really didn't, she wasn't having any issues and, um, got involved with children's hospital and, um, really she was, was fairly well controlled with everything, um, until she was about two and a half and then started getting seizures, which was um, a result of these, these little neurofibromatomas that can grow anywhere on your body were actually growing on her brain. Um, and they weren't cancerous or they weren't really a problem except for they're causing her seizures, but we were able to, um, to uh, deal with that. It was actually the day that she turned three, um, we learned that she had cancer. She had a type of cancer called adrenal, adrenal cortical carcinoma, which is a very was rare, and, was um, that related to her condition or completely? You know, separate? they they didn't think so at the time, but we now know that there is there is a correlation between mm -hmm. um, neurofibromatosis and cancer. But that's something they're still really learning about because it's so rare. They just haven't had a large number yeah. of of children to look at. But um, like the time that she was diagnosed, there were only six children in the world with that kind oh. of cancer. Oh wow! So we were, yeah, so we were talking the children. The, uh, doctors we had at Children's here in Denver were amazing. They were consulting with St. Jude's um, 
and they had never seen it there either, but at least there was someone there who had some knowledge of the research that was being done. So they were able to kind of guide our doctors. So we went through um, 11 months of chemo and surgeries and um, just, you know, hell for her to have to go through all that. And then ended up, ended up losing her um, about a month before she turned four. So, yeah. So it was, you know, when we went through infertility, I remember saying, you know, this was the worst thing that we're ever going to go through. And, and sadly that was not true. So, um, you know, losing her was, was, um, the worst, you know, life-changing. And I think, you know, for our whole family and, and our son was nine at the time and helping him, you know, navigate his grief and, and, well, also present. navigating your own, yeah. With also navigating our own, yeah. You know, and I had been working in, um, you know, as a therapist and knew that I couldn't, certainly couldn't do that work really since she was sick. I stopped, I stopped practicing mm-hmm. them and, you know, I needed to be with her full time and then took about six months off after, after she died and, and worked kind of doing emergency room kind of psych evals, which was able to be a little bit removed from, um, you know, working with patients in in private practice and that kind of thing. So did that for a while. And, you know, really ever since I moved to Colorado, I knew that CCRM was here. I worked at a a residential treatment center uh, for teenagers and worked with Deb Levy and Kathy Corbett um, at the time who who worked there as well. And they both left. Um, Deb Levy left to come work at CCRM um, and Kathy had left to go work at Conceivabilities. And as they were telling me where they were getting ready to go, I'm like, well, I want to work there. So I had, I always joked with Dr. Schoolcraft, I waited 10 years for this job. So, um, (laughs) so after, after Grace died, um, I worked doing kind of other work in mental health for several years and then um, worked at Judy's house, which is a um, grief center for children here in, in Colorado that Brian Greasy started, which is an amazing, amazing um, nonprofit for grieving families. So was the director of clinical services there for about four and a half years and just loved that, loved that work and felt like it was a way to kind of make Grace's death make sense. You know, I was able to use that experience and I think give hope to other families um, that, you know, grief is a something that never goes away. Um, you're forever changed, but, but there is, there is still life and love to be had afterwards. And that was amazing. And then, um, and then got the call that finally there was a job open at CCRM. And like I said, after waiting, you know, almost 10 years for the job. So made the difficult decision to leave Judy's house. And, you know, I think it's also, I think there's a, a little bit of a, a lifespan that you can work in grief before it probably becomes unhealthy. And I was getting to that point, I think, that I was getting a little bit, um, a little bit burned out. So coming in, and while there's certainly a lot of grief working in infertility, there's also so much hope and so much joy also that I think there was a little bit, it's a little bit more of a balance. Um, so that's where I am. And I've been here now for um, 12 years and work with, um, have really been able to help grow the the counseling services that we have at CCRM and I'm just so proud of what we do and and so incredibly grateful that we're one of the few clinics in the world that have embedded 
mental health professionals at the clinic. Um, so we're able to really provide a really unique level of, of emotional support for our patients. And we do support groups and that are, um, you know, no extra cost for any of the support groups. And I think we, we are able to just provide a level of support that, that I certainly never had when I was going through it and, and miss so much. And I'm so glad that, that we can do that. So, yeah, so that's kind of my story. That's, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And that's amazing that you are a clinic that provides so much support. Um, oh, I'm wondering yeah. if you have words of advice for those who might not be at a clinic that has that much support or might not be at a clinic yet of where where to start when you're feeling overwhelmed or you're having these emotions and really do need more assistance. Yeah, you know, it's it's such an isolating experience um, that that I always tell people that, that you need to find a community. You need to find your your tribe. You need to find your people that you're because you are not alone. I mean, one in eight women go through this, and I think that's probably mm -hmm. a probably a, a low number. I think that's way more than that. Um, and you know, when I, I was so young that. I didn't have any of my friends that were going through this. So there's there's Resolve, which is an amazing um, national organization for for uh, fertility. They've got, I think, since the pandemic, there's been a lot more um, things offered virtually. So you can you know start to find your people in lots of ways. Um, there's lots of professionals that specialize in this now. Um, ASRM, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, has a really active mental health professionals group. Um, you can go on, on that website and look for professionals in your area that specialize in this. And I, I think it's, it's critical to find, find the support wherever you can. So find it professionally, find it from peers, find it through you know, online support groups. Um, there's, you know, so many Facebook groups now and other, you know, other kind of communities out there that, that can be, can be great. So don't suffer alone, you know, find, reach out and find those people. That's one thing that's so fun about doing support groups is it's so amazing to bring people together that have never talked about it, have never felt supported and they instantly have found their people. And that, makes all the difference in the world. I mean, we like to think that, oh, as mental health professionals, you know, we really help, but I always tell people, you're going to get just as much help from other women that are going through this. They're the yeah. experts. Yeah. Great advice. Uh, I know another huge obstacle that came up in your story and your journey, as well as so many others, is just the ability to access treatment, access care, and yeah. to be able to afford it. Um, I'm sure you have lots of patients who are facing those challenges as well. Do you have any kind of uh, advice or resources that you point uh, those people towards? Yeah, you know, I'd say that is one of the most heartbreaking things about the infertility world is is the lack of access to care. You know that that so many times infertility isn't seen as a medical issue that it is, and women are not, you know, afforded basic diagnostic care. So. You know, I've been involved in, in with the, the Colorado Fertility Advocates and, and testifying and, and trying to get laws passed that provide women with, with insurance coverage for the care that they need. And we have a long, long way to go. And the two of you have been just incredibly instrumental in making the changes happen. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And I just 
just recently joined the board and excited to be able to to help continue to promote that. So, yeah, you know, I think um, talking, you know, if, I always tell women, talk to your employers. If you don't have insurance coverage at work, talk to your human resource department, let them know how important this is because they need to keep hearing this from people that they know that that this is really important. And encouraging patients to, you know, talk to your legislators, talk, you know, we have to make these changes from, uh, you know, in a big way. So getting involved all that they can, but, um, but it's hard. And there's also a lot of, not a lot, but there are some um, organizations out there who provide grants and that kind of thing. So I also try to hook people up with that. Um, and just looking at creative financing and, you know, it's not unusual to have patients who have GoFundMe pages and who have, you know, the church helping them out, which is, you know, so sad that we have to do that. But, uh, you know, people do what they have to do to have a family. This is the most important thing in the world. Yeah, I hear you. Um, yeah, no, it's such an ongoing struggle and we, you know, thank you for, in your spare time on the side, getting involved and trying to, to work on that issue and make a difference. Yeah. And um, I think that's right that like you have to try to patch together what you can with grants and help from others and find creative yeah. financing because it can be so difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any Anything else that is important do you think to share about your story or resources out there that you'd want to, to want people to know about? Well, I think the main thing I would want to tell people is that you're not alone, you know, and, and there is, there is hope. And, and I tell patients this all the time. And like, I can only think of a handful of people that this isn't true for, but that for the majority of people, if you want to have a baby bad enough, or you want to have a family bad enough, you can, it's just not, it just might not be the way you thought it was going to be. You know, you have mm -hmm. to, have to change that reproductive story. You know, you have to have to uh, look at what family means, you know, I mean, for me to realize that, okay, I'm not going to be genetically connected to anybody in the world. And at the end of the day, that's okay. You know, I, at the end of the day, what, what's important is that I want to be a mom. I want to have a family. And, and for some people, they have to really look at other options, you know, so is it an egg donor? Is it a embryo donor? Is it adoption? Is it doing pet rescue? Is it, you know, what is it going to mean to them? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, you know, in, in working at CCRM for 12 years, I, I've seen it happen so many times where I see somebody at the beginning of their journey and, and it feels like it's so insurmountable and there's no hope. And then, you know, now I, I get Christmas cards from people with their children or their dogs or oh, however they built their family and like, yeah. you know, and they're happy. They got through it. And, and so there's hope. It just may be, it may be different, but there's hope. And even, you know, going through what I hope is the worst thing I ever go through in my life, which is losing my child. There's, there's, there's still hope there, you know, there's joy. You just have to find it in different ways. And, um, yeah, so I, I think it's this that you're not alone is the main the main message I want to give people. And the, the, there's hope. That's such an important message, hope. too, that 
somewhere along the line, finding the joy, finding the hope and that there can be that ending that you're looking for that yeah. place you want to be, even if it doesn't look the same as when you started. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, you know, tell people like, especially when I worked at Judy's house and, and would work with families that were grieving uh, death losses and, and say, you know what, it, it's never going to be okay that this happened, but you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I remember people telling me that after, after Grace died, that, you know, you're going to be okay. And I didn't, and I remember thinking, I, I, I don't believe you. I don't think I'm going to be okay, yeah. but, but I have a, but I'm going to trust that what you're saying is true and hold on to that hope that that's eventually I'm going to be okay. And, you know, 18 years later, I can say, no, it's not okay, but that happened. It's not okay that my daughter's not here. She should be a 22 year old, you know, young woman and she's not and that's that's not okay but at the end of the day i'm okay and my family's okay and we survived it and um yeah and so there is that that hope that um that's such an important message thank you thank you for sharing your story and and coming on and talking with us well let me, can i just in yeah. with this this quote that I love. So yes. um, Anne Lamott, who's one of my favorite, I don't know if you guys know her, one, one of my favorite authors, she, um, this is a quote from her, I just want to read it. She says, you will lose someone you can't, you can't live without. Mm. And your heart will be badly broken. And the bad news is that you will never completely get over the loss of your beloved. But this is also the good news. They live forever in your broken heart. It doesn't seal back up. And you come through. It's like having a broken leg that never heals perfectly. It still hurts when the weather gets cold, but you learn to dance with the limp. So I think, you know, I think about that all the time. You know, you dance with the limp and we dance, you know, with the broken heart, but we still dance, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. Good. Amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you to Judy Becerra for sharing her personal and touching story and for all the great work she does in helping others. I, so amazing. I, I will, I mean, I know that y'all can't see me, but I rarely cry and she definitely made me cry talking about her story. So like, I'm very touched and I so honored that she was so willing to be so open with us. So thank you, Judy. Um, speaking of being open with us, I always have to transition somehow, right? Um, we always appreciate everybody's open and honest feedback about us. We, we hope you like us and like to leave us like amazing five stars on iTunes, but we would take that honest feedback if you did not love us enough to give us five stars. Um, also anybody who wants to call, um, they've definitely stopped doing car warranty calls now. We've moved on to student loan debt. So, um, yeah, so we, I would love messages that don't make me like really excited. I get all excited. I'm like, oh, we have a message on the machine. And then it'll be somebody asking me if I want to pay back my student loans. And, you know, I don't think this podcast is concerned with my student loans is what it really comes down to. So uh, we would appreciate if anybody wants to give us a call at 303-997-1903. We love hearing from you all. We love your suggestions for guests. And we we just want to know what you want to hear from us. Um, so thank you, as always, to Tyler, to Melissa, and to Amanda on our team who do so many amazing things to make us sound great. And of course, thank you to you for being here with us. Thank you.